Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Lori. We've always thought that the most compelling story strikes the perfect balance between an honest look at the mess of life and the humor that can be found in the mess. To be perfectly honest, we don't really know how to live life without both the humor and the authenticity. Our podcast might be a little bit of whiplash at times. We can spin from hard and deep to humor and laughing on a dime. The hard will be really hard and the truths we share are the ugliest of humanity. We don't intend to make it seem like it's all fine or to pretty up the pain, but we also know that the joy we found is all the more profound because of the pain. So we hope you can stick with us through the ugly because there will also be joy and hope and humor. Welcome to the ugly truth about the girl next door. Hi, welcome back to our podcast, The Ugly Truth About the Girl Next Door. I'm Kate. And I'm Lori. And we are back. Um, So today we have a little bit of a brain science episode. Everybody's favorite. Everybody loves Lori's brain science. Um, But we are are addressing it because while we're done going back and forth with... um, with Cornerstone Church on Grand Island, and we're done dealing with that whole situation. Um, people have come to us because their new Facebook group that they created, basically to discredit me. They've well, they've run out of material <laughs> to discredit me because um, there isn't much material to do that. But um, now they're trying to discredit all of trauma memory, yeah, and brain science about memory and traumatic memory. And so other survivors have come to us and said, like. I can't, this is so disturbing that they are posting these things, again, to try to discredit me and my memories, but what they're actually doing is discredit, like trying to discredit all memories. And again, reinforcing the idea that if you're going to disclose or get help for sexual abuse or any kind of, uh, don't go to the church. No, my God, no, absolutely not. Um, This is literally a church setting out to um, discredit sexual abuse victims. So... Um, yeah, it's really mind bending. So, but today we want to just address some of that and have Lori explain a little bit about, you know, we've did, we did a brain science that you did a brain science episode, yeah. trauma and memory in the very beginning, um, high leveled some of the realities of trauma and memory and what that looks like. Um, what I didn't do was address the so-called memory wars, you know, that there has been this ongoing debate in the clinical community and by the way, in general population about the idea of a recovered memory and what does that even mean and is that even a possible thing and you know that is part of what the church people are trying to put out there is that well you know everybody knows that recovered memories are false um so some of this is of course sort of in response to that but i again if you have not figured this out already i really believe that we should all be informed about memory and how memory works so that we have a ready response when somebody tries to say okay but really I mean I don't know if you didn't remember and now you do remember although do you want to comment on that idea yeah I do want to comment because um again the church and these people that are trying to discredit have tried to throw that shade on me as if this is all recovered memory like I had no idea that this was happening or had happened to me until I showed up and started yeah, and like that. that is so far from accurate and so far from the truth. Um, I mean, I came into Lori's office and pretty quick out the gate um, was telling her of experiences in which my father, you know, my people that my family knew um, were paying to have to do these things to me. That was I calling it trafficking? No. 
No. Um, but these are not memories that I like repressed and then suddenly remembered or anything like that. These are, I knew this coming into her office. Um, it took a minute to, again, put the name to it because it's the files folks. We've talked about it a lot, right? Yes. The files were there. We were acknowledging that the files were there. We both knew that the files were there. We didn't, Right. I mean, right. Unpacking an entire file cabinet of files takes time. And but the files were always there and we both knew they were right. And also for me, again, going back to um, letters that I had written to youth group leaders that I now have possession of, I'm describing situations in these letters written 20 years ago um, where multiple people are involved and there's money being exchanged. Um I disclosed at multiple different points in my life of these different kinds of things. So, yeah, these are not we're not talking about this because I feel the need to um, justify repressed memory like that's not that's not even really what happened here. Um, But it does happen. It does happen. And so for the church to take this like hard we're discrediting you by saying this one, you're not discrediting me by saying that because that wasn't my situation. That wasn't my experience, but two, you are discrediting or trying to discredit a ton of survivors and victims and people are feeling that. And so we just want to be here to clear the air for those people because someone needs to be an advocate for the victims and God knows it's not the church. So, so, so here we go. Okay. So first let me say, I think, if we all stop and really think about our own memory experience and how that happens, we can relate to the idea that I can know something and not know it in the front of my brain, Mm -hmm. right? I can be aware of like, what was the experience when my kids were born? Okay. My kids are 24, 26 and 28. So can I write this minute without really like thinking about it? Remember every detail? No, but it doesn't mean that it's a recovered memory. It just means that I would have to put a little bit of effort into finding the file, opening the file, reading the pages, Mm -hmm. processing that. So if we really all stop and think about it, I think we can relate to that. Um, but that's not even what we're talking about today. Okay. So first I think we really have to kind of take note of the fact that Um, There has been some attempt to compare what we're doing here to the whole satanic panic, um, and that is not what we're doing here. Yes, we have said those words. Like, it is not just in the inner city. It's not just in the immigrant population. It's not just teens getting sucked in to a boyfriend. or Like, yes, we are saying it is far more prevalent than Mm -hmm. people are recognizing, but we are not trying by any stretch of the imagination to create some kind of hysteria around this. We are though actively talking about right here in this area, there is a very significant problem Mm -hmm. with a specific group of people. That is what we are talking about. So So some of the articles that the church has shared on their Facebook page include an article um, in by the Atlantic Um, called the great, quote, fake child sex trafficking epidemic. Okay, so first I want to comment on the fact that according to All Sides, which is uh, an organization that rates media bias, the Atlantic is in the farthest left-leaning category, just for your information. So if you're curious about media bias, All Sides is a really great resource for understanding that. So in this article, the authors refer to Jeffrey Epstein's alleged sexual offenses. So first off, anybody who's been paying any attention understands that there's nothing alleged about Jeffrey Epstein's sexual offenses. Uh, he was identified as a level three sex offender in New York as like by 2010. 
and then had been rearrested in 2019 on sex trafficking charges. Alleged, I don't think that that is a reasonable word for this person to use. So basically in sharing this article, the church is trying to compare Kate's disclosures to people who are putting forth conspiracy theories on this like macro level, like cultural level, like the government is scamming us, for example. We're not here to comment on any of that. We have never commented on any of that. And it is ridiculous to try to use that as an argument to discredit a survivor. Another article they posted named Forget Me Not, The Persistent Myth of Repressed Memories. Um, in that article, the author, who is a psychologist, says, um, quote, a few months ago, a patient came to me inquiring about the possibility that I could help them uncover a memory as they were sure that something traumatic must have happened to them in childhood, though they couldn't identify any particular experience. Again, Kate's experiences have never been something vague, something she has a feeling for but no memory of. From the beginning, she has shared details, specific people, specific days, events, specific details. The fact that the church is using that kind of information as an argument means either they're not listening or they are confident that other people aren't listening and therefore will be taken off the track. The author also quotes Elizabeth Loftus, who we'll talk more about later. Um, she is a psychologist who has been active in testifying against recovered memory. So she testified on behalf of Ted Bundy to try to help get him off. Gisela Maxwell, who was Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend who helped him sexually assault many, many girls. And Harvey Weinstein. She testified in an attempt to discredit the reporters, to discredit the women who are coming forward. So why are we quoting her as somebody? I mean, most of us, I think, would understand like she is precluded now from being taken seriously. And the author also says that Jerry Sandusky, so this is a quote, Jerry Sandusky, Pennsylvania football coach, was convicted on multiple charges of child sexual abuse. But in a recent book by Prendergast, it's revealed that at least one of these children underwent recovered memory therapy techniques by his therapist. So that's what you're going to focus on in the Jerry Sandusky case. <laughs> okay, so if you don't know who Jerry Sandusky is, in 1977, Jerry Sandusky founded The Second Mile, a nonprofit charity serving Pennsylvania's underprivileged and at-risk youth, which is where he found the 52 young boys he was convicted of molesting between 1994 and 2009. On June 22, 2012, Sandusky was found guilty on 45 of 48 charges of child sexual abuse. But yeah, let's focus on the possibility that one of these children may have undergone some kind of recovered memory therapy. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous argument. And we are, again, really counting on people to use your brain and do your research. If you're going to listen and buy into any of this stuff, please seek to understand what it is that they're really saying. The definition of recovered memory technique. So this is one of the things I think it's important to point out. One of the criticisms of recovered memory has been around the techniques used to help survivors to identify kind of what their experience has been. And there has been criticism of recovered memory techniques, but the American Psychological Association describes that as a form of treatment specifically designed to elicit, elicit from the client forgotten or repressed memories of traumatic childhood events such as sexual abuse, including hypnosis or guided imagery. Kate? Have we had any experience with hypnosis or guided imagery? No, no, no. Mm -hmm. And our work has never been directly intended to retrieve those memories. It was, let's talk about what's going on. Let's talk about what your experience has been. Mm -hmm. Let's unpack that. It wasn't, 
tell me what you're not remembering. Like that has never been. Yeah, I feel like it's re- so. <laughs> someone recently asked me about uh, EMDR um, and like what that I, what that's like, and it, I honestly feel like everybody should go th- go should like take a class or go through it in some way. If you, I mean, again with statistics being what they are, everybody either has been abused themselves or know somebody who has that's reality mm-hmm. um again not to create hysteria just because that's the statistics one in four and one in six like you can't really argue with that um but i feel like it's an experience people have this idea that it's like this like lay on the couch and have a clock you know a watch waved in front of you or some kind of right like yeah. it, it's this like it's not hypnosis by right any stretch this like cartoon type of like thing and it that's not even what it is it's actually the least suggestive model possible for trauma recovery because it literally involves allowing a a person to just notice where their brain is making connections not honestly the role of the clinician in in emdr is very much more limited in cognitive behavioral interventions or in trauma reprocessing cbt like the Really, it's a lot of me sitting there going, and what are you noticing? And what are you noticing now? Yeah. Kate loves that. <laughs> okay, Lori asked me what shape my sadness oh was. My and gosh. I was like, nope. It doesn't. I'm Light not. Mainstream people. It's a great strategy for regulating, but not, no. So, okay, so EMDR is definitely, yes, that is a very well-regarded strategy for trauma treatment. Um but it is the least suggestive trauma treatment that you can imagine. However, there are respected people in the psychology community who have gained some, I'm gonna use notoriety, um, around the false memory syndrome idea. Elizabeth Loftus um, is one per woman's name. Um, she's been around since the 70s. She, um, she's written books about false memories and all of that. Um, she's testified at lots and lots of really bad people's um, trials on behalf of the defense. So she's Sounds trying- delightful. Yeah, really, re- pretty office. So Elizabeth Loftus um, c- claimed that memories can be altered or manipulated. Now. Note what she does not say. Memories can be created, right? So her research is around the idea of whether memories can be altered or manipulated for specificity. So for example, one of the studies that she did, um, they did some research on if you say to test subjects, two cars crash into each other versus two cars hit each other, what changes about how individual people remember the details of that. And what she found in her research is that when the verbiage was crashed into each other, the subjects of the research identified the speed of the vehicles as faster, like 41 miles per hour, versus when they used the term hit each other, it was slower, 34 miles per hour. So what she demonstrated in that is that in that kind of a scenario, you can like tweak the specifics of how a person remembers an event. Okay. However, she, again, through that, is not saying that she could create a memory. Um, so uh, this, she also, by the way, testified on behalf of Ted Bundy. So if you don't know who Ted Bundy is, look him up. She testified on his behalf in 1976 before he escaped and went on another, another killing spree. As far as I'm concerned, hmm. that ought to discredit, right? 
whatever comes after that, but you should think, right? You should think. However, that is not true. Yeah. So one of the other bits of research that she did and has continued to talk about over the course of time is what's called the loss in the mall study. Um, so what she and some of her students did was they kind of pulled together a group of college age students and they basically said, we're going to tell you about like five different memories or three different memories, two of which are true and one of which is false. And they were asking the students to figure out which one they thought were false. Um, there have been some criticisms since then of kind of the methodology that was used. Um, some of them have been ethical concerns, but some of them were things like, well, um, for one thing, they used they the one of the lines that they used was that there was an older family member who validated the memory, um, which automatically that is going to kind of lean the test subject to kind of say, oh well, that must be true, right? Well, that's manipulating the the outcome. Um, part of what we're also going to talk about is that she did not identify or even address the difference between common everyday memories versus seriously traumatic memories that people experience. And that, as we're gonna talk a lot about, is stored very differently. Um, so somebody, oh, somebody came after her, another clinical psychologist, Kathy Pe Pesdick. Um, so she said that getting lost in a mall is not the same thing as serious abuse. Um, they kind of conducted a variation on the study published in 1997. And in that situation, they presented to the, the memories being got lost in a mall. So the idea is saying, don't you remember you got lost in a mall when you were seven years old? Yeah, that happened to you. So comparing that to, so Elizabeth Loftus compared that to like, you got lost in a mall, you went swimming in a swimming hole, you like normal everyday things. So Kathy Pesdick compared getting lost in a mall to uh, or receiving an erectile enema. And across the board, all of the people who were like given that as an option were like, oh my gosh, I know for a fact that that never happened. So for sure, that's the false one. You're not like, no way are you going to convince me that I wouldn't remember that that happened. Um, so very, very different than what Elizabeth Loftus, who is like running around testifying hundreds, hundreds of trials that she's testified for the defense, trying to get criminals off based on false memory. Um, the people who founded the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, Peter and Pam Fry. Um, Peter and Pam. That Peter and like Pam. Say that ten times fast. Peter and Pam. <laughs> Sorry. It hit me like really like Peter and Pam. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we the way we are? Why? <laughs> I had to break up your brain science a I little. I mean, seriously. <laughs> I know, guys. This is really going to be, I don't know. I hope it's not boring. But No, it's great. Anyway. So Peter and Pam. Peter was accused by their daughter, Jennifer, of sexual abuse. And after mm. that, that's what made Peter and Pam bring like create the lost memory foundation look, look them up folks like mm -hmm. look them up and not just like in a superficial way there's all kinds of accounts of peter being really sexually inappropriate and creepy and by the way both daughters have alleged sexual abuse by him so again my estimation is anything they have to say should probably not be considered right yeah Okay, so uh, people who have tried... Okay, wait, pause. pause. I feel like that goes back to the whole idea of, like, motive, right? So, mm, like, Peter and yeah. Pam have motive to now put out into the world this information that memories aren't real and that traumatic experiences, like, nobody has them and blah, 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 because their daughters are accusing Peter of sexually abusing them. So they have motive there, right? A lot of people have asked, 
what's the end game here, right? So, like, what motive would Lori and I possibly have to be putting this information out into the world other than safety in numbers mm-hmm. and to help others be able to identify this type of abuse and to be able to then aid and assist other survivors and victims because we know that I'm not alone, right? Uh, people, like, again, and, like, what motive did these offenders have to lie and say everything. it didn't happen? Literally everything, right? right? Because, like, their whole life is on the line if they're like, ooh, you know what? Yeah, I did that. Like, who's going to do that, sure. right? Um so, yeah, again, I feel like that's a, a perfect public example, not within our little, like, Western New York, this is what's happening to me in my story, um, example of motive. <laughs> so, um, over the course of time, as I'm kind of, again, my basic position in life is that if there is something that I believe, and I know that there are people on the other side of the issue I don't know. There's a lot of people I respect who think differently than me. So I'm inclined to go, okay, tell me what they're saying. I need to understand what they're saying. So mm-hmm. I've gone out and I've looked at all the false memory foundation things, um, including, and we're going to need to post some of this stuff, I think, but there's yeah. a woman who remembered sexual abuse as a child and she's a social worker. This again, not local, but elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like, I don't know. I want to make sure that my memory, that I can trust my own memory. So she went out, she was on a mission to interview all of the people who were against recovered memory, right? And so she interviewed Elizabeth Loftus. She interviewed Pam Fry. Um, and I think we should post, she made like a documentary of her journey of understanding yeah. her own experience um, because she interviewed these women. And honestly, I was embarrassed for them by how lacking in substance their comments were, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, not to be, I don't know, mean or disrespectful, but neither one of them had really like, they were like, I just, I just can't believe that that could be. It was. Okay. But like, do you hear, like, do you hear the similarities? Right. So we're going to post it so that people can, again, we're all about, you can, we believe that you are smart enough to make your own. The problem is, is that a lot of people won't do their own research. And so that's the difficult thing is that there are people who are blindly following the church and blindly hearing what John Sherholtz has to say or any other church leader, you know, Cal Vandermeer telling his people don't listen to the podcast. It goes against the church. People don't, a lot of people just choose not to do their own research. They would rather live in their bubble with their blinders on and just believe the people that are in front of them. So I know I have said this many times. My anecdotal belief is 20% of the world is actively doing bad stuff. 20% is actively doing good. And there's 60% in the middle. We are done trying to reach certainly that 20% at the bottom. We're also done trying to reach like probably the lower 40% of that 60 But come on, people, join us in the top 40% of people who are Mm -hmm. applying your brain power. We're trying to make it as accessible as we can. Come with us on this journey so that you can show up for the people around you who need you to do that. So that you have a ready answer for people who are like, okay, but recovered memory. Uh Uh-uh. Guess what? I have information, and here it is. Yeah. Okay? So come with us. Right? Okay. Absolutely. So, um. Part of the problem with what Loftus and Fry have kind of tried to put forward is that they are trying to generalize the, the research that um, Elizabeth Loftus has done. They're trying to generalize it out beyond like those little everyday kinds of experiences. And it doesn't generalize because trauma and common everyday memory functions differently. So they're, they're ignoring the brain science part of that. So, 
Bessel van der Kolk um, is the author of the book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's a very well-regarded, Bessel van der Kolk is kind of, he's, again, he's the guy. He's also super funny, so look funny like very accessible regular person like I watched it actually um the woman who I was talking about who went on a quest to prove her whether her memory could be true or not she interviewed Bessel van der Kolk and he was like basically girl if I could actually imprint a memory if I could implant a memory I would have it I would I would be like I would be I would have a Nobel Prize mm -hmm. right that is not mm -hmm. a thing that uh, people can do well and also I think you had said this to me if therapists could actually implant memories wouldn't they just implant good memories right. and then everybody would be okay because like you would implant why right. would you be implanting bad memories you know what I mean again right. it makes no sense wouldn't that be fabulous wouldn't if, it be I would love that kind would of you superpower implant, like that I'm a millionaire or some kind of <laughs> that would be super 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 <laughs> nope okay. So in preparing for this, of course, I did some research and I read a paper that Bessel van der Kolk wrote. Um, and one of the, th okay, so we're going to talk about it. So again, hang, <laughs> you're going to have to like make this a little bit more fun because I get all I'm already making brain fun. nerdy. I'm hilarious. <laughs> Everybody knows that. Okay. Um, so one of the things that he said is that studies of people's reports of highly significant personal events generally find that their memories are unusually accurate and that they tend to remain stable over time, mm -hmm. right? So something that is personally, so not I'm a research subject and somebody's telling me a nice little story, but something that personally affected me, right? That tends to be like pretty accurate and stable over time. Um, again, what Fry and Loftus don't acknowledge is that there's a difference between like something that I just experienced in a research study versus something that I've very directly experienced. Mm -hmm. um, in one study, researchers interviewed witnesses to a murder four or five months after the event. What they found is that these witnesses were had very accurate recall with little apparent decline over time. They also concluded that emotional memories of such shocking events are detailed, accurate, and persistent. And they said that witnessing real traumas leads to quantitatively different memories than just lab things, right? So all the research speak. Mm -hmm. um, more recent memory research shows that there are f there's a lot more complexity to how memories get stored than we kind of normally. So, you know, in the trauma and memory episode, I talked about the hippocampus and how kind of that goes offline when things are cortisol and adrenaline, like yes to all of that stuff. Um, and we talked about how memories can be stored in a way that it's difficult to have words for them. I don't know, do you want to comment on that at all? Memories that, I have to, that are yeah. difficult to have words? Yeah. yeah. There are memories that I have that are so early that I would never, I don't have the words to describe what's being done because it's a four-year-old memory um, and it's a four-year-old experiencing it. And so a four-year-old wouldn't have the words to be able to describe body parts or um, sexual acts, things like that. And so, yeah, there is a, there's a, a whole chunk of memories that I have the visual, I have the sensation, I have the smell in the room and the, um, like the physical pain. I have all of that. Um, but to describe, uh, and I have usually the who, if I knew who it was, I can put a face, um, or a body part, like their hands were really rough or, um, something sensory, right? Um, but to describe and give you like, okay, this person then entered the room and then they walked over to me and then they did. That's not, that's not as much there because it's a four-year-old experiencing it. And so 
it's more the sensory. It's listening to the floor creak as they walk towards the bed, which again, I'm, I'm, I'm adult me is putting the, they walked towards the bed over top of that four-year-old memory because the four-year-old memory is the floor was creaking. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that is exactly what the research shows. That was a really good description because what they, what the researchers have found is that trauma survivors have all of those sensory details. And then as they begin unpacking the trauma and working their way through and retrieving more of those sensor, not, not pulling it together. Like I mm -hmm. think that's a better way. Again, puzzle pieces thrown out on the table, people, right? As trauma survivors start now taking those puzzle pieces and oh this one goes here and this one goes here and this one goes here it's now easier yeah I think the other thing that people again with the whole like EMDR and like whatever is that the the puzzle pieces are like almost in spasm mm. when you first walk into this so like we will take a memory and it is like I can't even focus on anything because it's it's so traumatic and it's so it almost makes physically it's like I'm hyperventilating because it's I'm right back there. Right. And so it's then it is Lori's job as the clinician to. You OK, really hate saying that, don't you? I do hate <laughs> saying that. I'm like, huh. OK, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I so respect your profession. Uh-huh. 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 <laughs> Sorry. What shape is the memory? Uh, the feeling. What shape is the feeling? Oh, come on. Um, anyway. No, but then her job or any clinician's job would be to, in my experience, to, okay, settle and like put the pieces out one by one so that it's not so overwhelming and that we can look at each of the sensory pieces to make, to put them together in a way that is, uh, that is even possible. Coherent. Yeah. That's Coherent. even because a lot of times it's just, it starts out as just this panic. Right. And so like, okay, calming the panic to now be able to, um, to work through it and to store it differently and all of those great so things. So to continue our puzzle metaphor, right. When you first <laughs> like shake up the puzzle box and then dump all the pieces on the table, mm -hmm. it's chaos. Yeah. You have to spend how much time flipping every individual? This is why I don't puzzle. I oh hate doing God, puzzles. I hate puzzles. I hate them. But flipping every piece over, maybe sorting them into edge pieces and middle Carla pieces. Carla told me that her and Glenn just like love to buy puzzles and do them. <sighs> and I just feel like, girl, first of all, what? Because like that is so not her. And two, like, oh. No, I have like a hyperventilation. I always like, want Whoa. to buy a puzzle. Like I'll see them and be like, that is so cute. And that sounds like such a good idea. And then we do it. And it's like, well, that was awful. My poor kids, like they would be like, hey, let's do a puzzle. And I'd be like, um, let's go for a walk. <laughs> Can we pick an alternative? Read a yeah, book? No. I don't know. Something else. <laughs> anyway. So we understand that as when when we first start working on a puzzle, it is chaos mm -hmm. and it's organizing it, it's not creating anything. We're not no, cutting out puzzle no, pieces from right. cardboard and stuffing them in there. Right. We are, oh, look, this is how this part, of, this corner of the puzzle is shades of orange. So mm -hmm. let's gather up all those and see now what we can see. That's the process. Yeah. A recent general population study showed that total or significant amnesia of traumatic events occurred in a proportion of victims after every kind of traumatic experience. For reasons that are not clear, childhood sexual abuse seems to have the highest proportion of total amnesia prior to memory retrieval, figures ranging from 19 to 38%. Okay, 
But by the way, 19 to 30%, that still leaves a ton of people who have active ongoing memories over the course of time, but it leaves space for the possibility that memories can be encoded as a sensory experience without having the words to be able to describe the memory. Mm -hmm. um, so the research are saying that because when people become too upset, memories can't be transformed into like a narrative. The memory is always there. There just aren't any words for it because of how memories, traumatic memories are stored. I also, okay, so sorry, going back to the whole like the body keeps a score thing. I also think that this is in part before you, so for someone who has experienced traumatic memories, before you have a Lori in your life who can work through those things with you and can do it in a way that is, um, safe and coherent it's it is the the memories are there regardless right you have I mean before I met Lori I had high high anxiety I couldn't leave my kids alone with anybody I was hysterical like watching Evelyn sleep um I couldn't sleep even when she was sleeping I mean physical sensations of just like my body aching and like because I wasn't dealing with any of that and because I had all the boxes closed I would shut it out and shut it out and shut it out. It doesn't mean it wasn't there, right? right. It's not like I was like living my life like perfectly, amazingly happy. Be and then I decided to go to therapy one day and now have all this trauma. Like the trauma has always been there. It's been in, in my physical sense. It's been in my mental sense um, for a long time. Well, it your husband knew. Right. Before you got married. Right. Yeah. Okay. This, this wasn't like, oh, a year ago. Right. Five no. years ago. My God, no. No. Um, but I'm just saying, like, even if you're not actively dealing with the memories, they're there anyways. They're the physical sensation of the trauma is there regardless. And you can choose to just medicate and move through. Right. Or just not deal with it or do whatever it is that you do. But but that doesn't make it so that it's not there. It's not like the therapist has brought it out. Right. Again, wish I had those kind of superpowers because yeah, right? I would bring out all kinds of positive things, people. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like, you know, what you're talking about, anybody who's experienced a significant loss and is kind of traveling through the journey of grief talks about the blindsiding effect of like, I can be going through my day perfectly normally and then something will happen. A flash of a memory of my lost loved one or the smell of kind of a certain kind of flowers or whatever will now catapult me into the depths of grief all over again. Trauma's like that too. Mm -hmm. You're just going through your life and it's not that you don't know that the trauma thing is there, but it's like over there, over there, which again, we all know that mm -hmm. I, I can, I know what my kid's childhood was, but I'm not right this minute. I'm not thinking about that. Right. I'm thinking mm -hmm. about these things, but something can happen that now bring it front and center right. in your brain. Okay. This is very important because this is hardcore brain science. I, I'm, I'm about the brain science because I know people believe that that is more reliable. Like you can look at it on a chart. So, mm -hmm. so there's, they've recently done studies that are including neuroimaging. So like MRI machines and stuff, right? Where what they do is they put somebody in an MRI machine and then they do something to provoke the trauma memory. And what they see when that happens is that Broca's area, which is the part of the brain that's involved in speech and language, is not firing, right? And okay, maybe not, please, again, don't major on the minors with me here, people. I'm not saying it's like dead. Mm -hmm. I'm saying there's not a lot of activity in Broca's area when they trigger it. But what is lighting up like crazy is stuff in the right hemisphere, which is where all intense, intense emotions and visual images, that's where that is, right? So 
they put somebody in an MRI machine, they trigger the trauma memory, words not activated. Sensory experiences and big feelings and all of that lighting up like crazy. That's why trauma survivors have a difficult time expressing their experience. It doesn't mean that they're magically now recalling it. It means that they're having a very hard time expressing it. Even if they could overcome the shame and the fact that too many people don't respond well, even if they could overcome all that, the brain has a way of protecting itself mm -hmm. from too much knowing of traumatic experiences. That's why most people, like I think the average age of, re of telling is like 50s like yeah. 50 or something like that. That makes sense. Okay. Comments or anything you want to say about that? Mm, no. Okay. I don't, yeah. No. Okay. So another recent study um, created a, an instrument, the trauma, no, the traumatic memory inventory that allowed for a detailed look at the nature of traumatic and non-traumatic memories. And they created a structure for how they were going to understand how they were retrieved differently, right? One versus the other. Okay. So what they did is they asked their subjects the same question about a highly significant experience like a wedding or the birth of a child. What they found is none of those people who were just asked about, you know, a not something traumatic, just a personally significant event. There were not sensory details, right? They didn't have smells, visual flashbacks, auditory body senses. Um, in fact, people were like, what are you talking about? No, I can't remember exactly what the nurse smelled like who helped deliver my baby. No, actually I can't. Um, no vivid dreams or flashbacks, no periods of amnesia, no photographic memories like where I can snapshot, oh, I remember literally this thing, like I talked about the flower on the wall in the one episode. Um, none of that, no environmental triggers and no effort over time to suppress any of the memory. So, okay, that's like one kind of memory. However, when they started asking about traumatic memories, all of the subjects reported that they initially had no narrative memory of the event. They couldn't tell a story about what had happened. All of them, regardless of the age at which the trauma occurred, claimed they initially remembered the trauma in the form of some kind of somatosensory, like some sense flashback experience. Mm -hmm. Because trauma memories are different than even significant life event kind of memories. They are stored differently. Um, we understand that and that kind of goes together so if you all of you who had like had to do psych 101 when you were in college right um P jean piaget had the created the theory of cognitive development so you know all the, the four basic stages um and so that idea is supported by piaget because what he said is that memories cannot be integrated on a language level they tend to be organized in a more primitive way so like visual or sensations, right? So when our brain does not allow us to store information in a way that is like in Broca's area where I can have words for it, it tends to be stored kind of at the more primitive part of our brain where we just are re-experiencing it, right? So when we're talking about retrieved memory, we're not talking about a memory that wasn't there that is now there, right? Again, if people could do that, that's pretty amazing and they should get a Nobel Prize because I'm not aware. People can distort, again, Elizabeth Loftus, you can distort or manipulate some d details about a memory, but to implant a whole new memory, it's not a thing, people. So nope. don't be fooled. No. Awesome. So how do, can, you, can you talk a little bit about what it feels like, though, to think that there are people out there who are buying the nonsense? Uh, 
Well, there is a part of me that will always feel the need to prove the truth because being able to tell the truth and to have people believe it is survival. So um, coming forward and, and disclosing abuse at each different escape attempt, um, the key is having people believe me and then ultimately get help for me um, or help me get help, right? Um, so there is that part of me that is still like, no, but you need to understand, you need to know, you need to, like, I have to be able to, like, ugh, prove it, right? Um, then there is the more developed me <laughs> uh the me that's been in therapy for five and a half years that can kind of say okay those people um one they're not people that I want in my world anyway um two that a lot of people like I said before just won't do the research and maybe they listen to the podcast but I think some people listen to the podcast for entertainment value which has its whole other kind of connotation with that. Um, yeah, it's complicated. Um, I'm thankful for the brain science stuff because I'm, uh, I do think that that is like, there it is. Did you just give brain science credit? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. Because it's hard to argue with, right? Yeah. Um, and especially when you do the research and you hear about things like this Elizabeth Lofton chick who, like, testifies for Ted Bundy. Like, who doesn't know who, right? If you don't know who Ted Bundy is, like, girl, get Netflix. And she's you know testified I mean? for all kinds of other really heinous human beings. Yeah, but so. sure, let's quote her. And I, But again, that's the people that are taking one small thing, taking it out of context. And for me, honestly, that's pretty triggery because that is what my whole life has been, is taking one small thing out of context and then using it against me. Um, so, or even missing the forest for the trees. I feel like, again, we've experienced plenty of that and we're grateful for the people who are pushing back against that and recognize that that's nonsense, but we've experienced plenty of like, okay, but you said this and now you're saying this. And it's not like they're contradictory statements so much as they are emphasizing one piece over another piece. Yeah. <sighs> I feel like even a few months ago, I maybe would be more, um, just like, anxious and aggravated with this whole cornerstone and Facebook group thing. But I've actually had some really smart, really um, well-educated um, people who are, who are taking the stance of not neutral because there is no neutral in abuse, but um, who have said to us, I've gone back and listened to the entire podcast Truly with the intent of finding the inconsistencies. Because they're listening to people say there are inconsistencies. Yeah. They're like, okay, well, let me see. Let me see for myself, sure. right? And we love people like that. Let me see for yep. myself. Um, and they have – this is not just one person. This is three, four people who have said I either had every reason to not believe it um, or I've gone – I do believe you and I've gone back and listened from the beginning with a notebook and a pen to baby basically write down the inconsistencies and I have – I have listened to it a, a, for a second time in its entirety and have found none. Um, that's that's really great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm really thankful for those people that they took the time to do that because I know that my – I know what my experiences are. I know what the truth is. Um, I don't question that, obviously. Um, 
but it's helpful to have, you know, kind of people with without any motivation in either direction to say, yeah, I know this, this tracks. Um, so that when the garbage comes out of Facebook from all the people that have every motivation to discredit, it just makes it a little bit easier to stand, you know, stand in that, I guess, and take it. I feel like we have, you know, somewhat sarcastically, but sort of truly, um, said to each other, well, yeah, I'm actually kind of grateful for the truth about the ugly truth people because you're giving us the opportunity to be like, oh, that's what the people on the other side of this are saying. So mm-hmm. let's understand that so that we can address. Right. And it's a fine line because we're not going to address every little ridiculous no. thing that I mean. And I'm also also um, completely unwilling to be baited into uh telling more of my story than I than I want to tell um, or giving more details to prove the point that only like re-victimizes me um, and so I've gotten to a place of being able to say like I don't oh like honestly <laughs> they said it in their post she doesn't owe us yeah. anything but I don't owe you anything um, I really don't give a crap about your stupid Facebook group and um but you're right in that, especially what they're doing now in trying to discredit not just me, but like right. so many All trauma survivors, survivors right. is like one, whew, that gives us somewhere to start in terms of like, okay, does everybody see now why the church is not a safe place to come forward? And two, um, to be able to use the brain science to then flip that narrative and say, okay, nice try. And for people who are out there who are, okay, maybe they are sort of in the middle over here of like, well, I don't really know what I think about recovered memory. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you, by the way, Facebook Mm -hmm. fools, like for helping us to, that's my Facebook fools. Thank you so much for like letting us know that that is something that people need information about. We are happy to provide information again. Mm -hmm. I have total confidence that the people from this on this end of the spectrum of like the 20% actively doing good. And then at least the 20% below that, we are confident that you can take this information and run with it. Yeah. 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 So you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you, Bessel van der Kolk and Dan <laughs> Siegel and all you brain science people for giving us the information we need to be able to help people understand why. Yeah. So yay. Awesome. Thanks. Stay tuned. If you or someone you know is stuck in a trafficking situation and needs help, please reach out to the National Human Trafficking Hotline by calling 1-888-373-7888 or text HELP, H-E-L-P, to 233-733.